morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today as always, but before we get to that, Brianna would like to say some words. Go ahead. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, as many of you know, journalist Katie Halper was a guest host on Rising Monday before last, and as part of that role, she recorded a radar, a monologue. The radar addressed Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib's statement that progressives cannot ignore the apartheid conditions many Palestinians live under and be progressive except for Palestine. Katie's radar critiqued the backlash to Tlaib, incited a former Secretary of State, chair of Israel's left political party, Israel's former education minister, former Israeli environment minister, and others who corroborated this view that Israel is an apartheid state. The decision was subsequently made by The Hill editor-in-chief Bob Cusack not to air her radar. Katie was then told that not only would she not be asked back to host, but that she would no longer be invited to do the regular guest spots she has been participating in for about three years now. I strongly disagree with how Katie was treated by The Hill. It seems obvious to me from her long tenure on the show that neither the quality of her analysis nor her presentation style has ever been seriously in question up until this point. You can find her radar, which she re-recorded with Breakthrough News, an independent media channel, on their YouTube page and judge for yourself. I, for one, find it difficult to believe that despite The Hill's representations, this is merely an editorial decision as opposed to an ideological one. As a former senior politics editor at The Intercept myself, I found the quality and accuracy of Katie's radar to be unimpeachable. And I believe losing Katie's commentary is a real loss for The Hill. Over the past week, I have struggled with whether to continue co-hosting this show. Robbie and I talk about censorship and cancel culture frequently, and it feels hypocritical to talk about those subjects without applying the same scrutiny to our own show. However, I also believe strongly in this show's format. I deeply value cross-ideological discourse, and I think The Hill is one of the few corporate media spaces in which left voices are tolerated at all. The Hill has told me that the decision to end its relationship with Katie is an editorial decision about style and not ideology or substance, and that it would be happy for me to cover Israel-Palestine and any other newsworthy topic as I see fit. So I've decided to put that claim to the test. I will be staying with The Hill as long as I do not experience what I believe to be ideological censorship. I will continue to cover topics as I see fit, including the ongoing apartheid conditions in Israel. And if at any point I feel like I am being censored, I will end my relationship with The Hill. I will have more to say about this decision on my own show, Bad Faith Podcast, which you can find on YouTube and wherever else you get your podcast. And I'll be also hosting an opportunity for folks to call in and comment on my call-in show, The Debrief, which you can find with the call-in app later tonight. I appreciate The Hill giving me this opportunity to voice my view on this matter. Look, I feel similarly to you. I didn't like how this was handled at all. Um, I, and I've not liked how some previous things have been handled. It was really hard uh, parting ways with Kim Iverson, who I remain very strong friends with. Um, you know, look, the audience knows we've had growing pains on this show following the departure of the longtime hosts, where we've had different people trying to figure out how we all get along and fit in with our various perspectives together. The Hill got acquired by a new parent company, so there have been uncomfortable times. I'm sure we've gotten things wrong sometimes or handled things not as we should, but I love this show. The viewers of this show uh, have been so loyal to us and as we try to figure things out, and they trust us. I, I hope that you continue to trust us to deliver unfiltered, unbiased, uncensored news um, the 
the only news show in existence right now that actually features debates and disagreements. And I think that format, like you, still has value, and we're going to keep at it um, until until they pull they pull the, the, yeah, pull the plugs well, on this or, thing, or until you know. We, we prove a contrary case and find that it's not is no longer a place for this kind of conducive uh, conducive rather to these kind of conversations. So. Well, we'll we'll find out. I'm confident that's not the case, but we'll see how it goes. All right, enough of that. Let's get to the actual news of the day. So, despite pressure from the U.S. Wednesday, OPEC and non-OPEC partners agreed to uh, deep output cuts, allegedly seeking to spur a recovery in crude oil prices. The decision will reduce production by two million barrels per day in November and represents a major reversal in production policy for the alliance. President Biden was caught by reporters when the news broke yesterday. Here's what he said. Are you concerned about these cuts from OPEC? The White House said in a statement that Biden was, quote, disappointed by the move to cut production. And according to CNN, the Biden administration launched a full-scale pressure campaign to dissuade Middle Eastern allies from cutting production, which obviously didn't work. The slash in production means gas prices will rise ahead of the midterms and give Republicans arguably the upper hand on inflation and economic messaging. So obviously, Biden, and I don't blame him for not you know, he got ambushed, interviewed, there. like, did you hear the thing? And he handled that just fine. I mean, he hadn't heard about sure. it yet. Um, yeah, but it is not, obviously not good news, given the importance of economic issues and gas prices and how gas prices affects everything else, heading right into midterms. Yeah, what's kind of so embarrassing about this is that the Biden administration, uh, American politicians in general, are expressing frustration that Saudi Arabia, the kind of mobster they made this deal with, OPEC, this the, you know, kind of explicitly uh, price-fixing organization that they've been trying to assuage to operate in the benefit of the United States isn't doing so. And the compromises that America has made on a foreign policy uh, basis on a kind of, um, it's the compromises it's made to its ability to b take the high road and be the moral arbiter of the, United, uh, of the world, uh, not talking about Saudi Arabia's murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, not talking about as forcefully as they, they have been, although there have been people on the left who, who do, the war in Yemen. It, you know, all of those sacrifices right. have been for naught if at the end of the day, the bully that you try to ally with is still not going to play ball with you. And so I find myself in a difficult position here where it, there's obviously downsides to how this is going to nurture to the, to the, to the pain right. of the American public. But also this is kind of uh, the, the issues with this kind of um, uh, price-fixing scheme are coming to the fore in this moment because it was always a tenuous agreement to begin with. Saudi Arabia engages in many of the same kind of unacceptable illiberal behaviors in terms of political repression or not you know not extending fundamental rights to certain sectors of their population and and cruel involvement in places like Yemen many of the things we're upset about that Russia is doing or that we've previously been upset about at Iran uh, or Venezuela or like, I mean it, we pick we're like we're mad at you we don't accept this we hate you you're great though but there's no you if you if you you know did a blind test you wouldn't be able to tell which policy right. is which because they similarly engage in things that are absolutely bad, but we don't have some united across the board opposition to, I mean, we, for sake of real politic, we can't, I guess, but yes. it it's, just makes our yeah. commitment very confused. Yeah, 
and this is, you know, this is the hypocrisy that I think the left has been pointing out for a really long time. You know, when the left complains about sanctions on Venezuela and we're told that it's because of, you know, communism is so bad and socialism is so bad and they have to shut the country down, and then you turn around and see America lifting sanctions so that Chevron can produce more oil in Venezuela, right. it kind of explodes the whole project. Right. But which, but which is something I support. I, I, look, I oppose, I, we have this discussion with a couple guests here. Yeah. I don't think a socialist communist model is a very good one for producing oil, but I would not I would not punish, I would not sanction any of these countries, including Russia, including, it, it, sanctions are a bad tool, I think, that tend to immiserate uh, people in those countries without doing, uh, it would be one thing, I guess, if you could point to some sterling track record of success for causing what regime change, regime I suppose, change. is yeah. what they say is the goal, but that never, never works. We've embargoed Cuba for like 9,000 years, not actually 9,000 <laughs> years, but it feels like it, and it's for no effect, no effect whatsoever on their government. Yeah. Um, but it, it does appear that Saudi Arabia is strengthening its ties with Russia, and OPEC's decision will help Russia shore up more income and hurt the U.S. But on the Venezuela front, you want to read this news, Brianna? Yeah, meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Biden administration is preparing to scale down sanctions on Venezuela to allow Chevron to resume pumping oil there. In exchange, President Nicolas Maduro is set to resume long suspended talks with the country's opposition to discuss conditions needed to hold free and fair presidential elections in 2024. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Which I think is uh, good news, but we'll see how that shakes out. Obviously, it won't be enough um, oil to make some kind of meaningful short-term difference, but it could you know, signal to the market in a positive way that I suppose brings down prices, potentially. Yeah. Look, I did fill up yesterday, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's I wish we could have a conversation uh, that didn't peg, it, that, that when we're talking about all these global consequences, whether it's a supply chain crisis, whether it's these kind of international policy uh, machinations that are affecting uh, prices at the pump, we all know that it's not the Biden administration, the Trump administration, any political party that's largely responsible for all of these things. So I would hope that in this moment we can actually start moving away from the framing of Biden's going to hurt in the polls. Biden is going to hurt. Uh, you know, people are going to look down on Biden because of whatever happens with oil prices. I know that that's a fool, fool's errand yeah. and it's not going to change. No, maybe but, November 9th we can uh, right. we can put that aside. It's just uh, so frustrating when we when we see all of the context yeah. laid bare in front of us. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll be back with more rising right after this. Thank you for sticking with us and stick with us for our next segment, please. <laughs> see you soon. As we inch closer and closer to the November midterm elections, Fox News is providing significantly more coverage of the U.S. Senate races than CNN or MSNBC. According to Media Matters, in the four weeks following Labor Day, Fox's weekday primetime broadcasts mentioned the Democratic nominees in seven competitive Senate races more than twice as many times on CNN and MSNBC's broadcast uh, than CNN and MSNBC's broadcast did combined. Fox's primetime shows also mention Republican candidates more often than CNN and MSNBC. What's going on here, Robbie? Well, I just, I, so I found this fascinating for two reasons. One is just the underlying thing that Fox News is talking about these races far more than their competitors, mm -hmm. probably because their competitors are still hung up on Trump-related drama. I mean, maybe <laughs> yeah. January 6th, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, so to the detriment of actual news, because people do care about what's going on. I mean, it's not that they don't care about those sure. things, but uh, generally the news channels, the political news channels, Channels, you know, go super focused on, um, on on midterms. I mean, we talk about midterms a lot mm -hmm. um, because that's what 
you know, that's the big game. That's mm-hmm. what people watch the political news channel for. So the fact that CNN and MSNBC are still so focused on kind of backward looking on Trump stuff, I thought was interesting. And then I also found it interesting the way Media Matters, because this is how it caught my attention. This was Media Matters framing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, it was like, it was a bad thing. It was like, oh, Fox is talking about midterms constantly. Well, what and the, CN- What's the negative implication there? I, I guess they're, it, was, it was either they're concerned that Fox is talking about it or, or, like, or like Fox is obsessed with it or something. I didn't quite get it. But, you know, huh. Media Matters does, like, Fox did something bad. Yeah. That's everything they do. Sure. So you were supposed to... You were supposed to take from it. Like it's that, like, insidious that they're right. telling the public what's right. going I, on. <laughs> exactly. I mean, obviously, if they followed up with some substantive critique of right. how the coverage went, that like would be one thing. Like, if the coverage was very slanted in favor of Republican sure. candidates, whatever, I, I don't mean, think that would surprise anyone. But but apparently, that's not what the article no, actually argued. No, no, no. It was just, they're talking about midterms. What can be done about this? You see, this seems part and parcel of something that I've observed about liberals for a long time, which is that there is a kind of presumption that you don't even have to really know that much about your opponent. They're very bad. They're Republicans. They've made choices. And so there's not, a, uh, there's not a need to know with any detail or specificity what their policies are, what they actually believe and don't believe. And I think that really hurts Democrats because they tend to make overly broad claims about people. They rely on claims that a person is racist or bigoted or things like that, which I got to say may or may not be true case to case, instance to instance in varying, in varying degrees. But for people who are not getting that from Fox who are not consuming those candidates in that way, those narratives that are all the Democrats often fall back on really fall flat. And they'll say things like, well, I don't need to know about so-and-so. He's obviously big. Or let's say, I don't need to know about Herschel Walker or his policies or why people like him. The big one was, I don't need to understand Trump. And the vast majority of the Democratic Party continues not to understand Trump or why he was appealing to so many people because they think, well, the act of even getting to know him, given that I've labeled him in my mind as a bigot, would sully me in some way. And so over and over again, I find that, frankly, Republicans are much more knowledgeable about their Democratic opponents and score a lot of points in in fights that aren't necessarily indicative of who's the better candidate, in my view. But they're much more effective debaters because they actually inform themselves about their opponents. Yeah, I've noticed this uh, exact thing you're talking about here, most uh, most notably with the Nevada race. Mm. The Democratic incumbent is Catherine Cortez Mastro, and her opponent, the Republican, is Adam Laxalt. Mm-hmm. That was by far the name that took me the longest to learn mm-hmm. because, it just, though I get tons of campaign materials for some reason, I'm, <laughs> I'm not voting in Nevada, I don't know why, <laughs> but I get a lot of materials yeah. about that race, and it's been my impression from looking at it that his name is real is not used with great frequency. Mm-hmm. It's it's that's just not the like you would not you would not have casually learned well who is the opponent who are you running against. That's my impression from from what they're doing in the race that is the race that is going to decide. In yeah. my view, the Nevada race is the race that is the one that is going to determine whether we ha- we still have a split Senate or we have a Democratic an outright Democratic yeah. majority or in theory a Republican outright majority. But it, I think it's going to be split or Democrat. It, it, it feels like a communications choice to actually just really lean into the idea of just voting blue no matter who, pick yeah. the D's down ticket. It's almost a, a distraction to be specific about who your candidates are. And it also, I think, would challenge Democrats to contend with the vulnerabilities of their own candidates, too. Now, to be clear, as we talked about at length on this podcast, there are a lot of real stinkers uh, on, and the, that came out on top of the Republican primary, in part because the Democratic Party was funding their campaigns and hoping to Pied Piper strategy their right. way right. into victory. Correctly but, and rightly. I mean, from a tactical standpoint, I think sure. it's a morally appalling tactic, but it's working. Sure. <laughs> but what we're seeing, I, I noticed this in analysis about Stacey Abrams. They did a radar about this a few weeks ago. I see this when 
when we talk about you know why Democrats aren't doing as well as they thought they would do in these various races, the analysis on the Democratic side of the aisle is so shallow, and it always redounds to. You know, you know, Stacey, race, uh, Stacey Abrams is just can't overcome racism mm. or black men are sexist and therefore they won't vote for Stacey Abrams. And, you know, it's hard to challenge some of those claims because there's there's a black you know, an men element won't vote for Stacey Abrams. Yeah, I mean, well, that, I that, that. that was that was like the, the the poll information that I went to went through in that radar. And there's a lot of like online Twitter ish discussion now where a lot of you know black men are feeling like they're being unfairly stigmatized in the context of this, especially since overwhelming majorities of black men still are voting for Democrats. They just are slightly fewer than black women who are voting for Democrats, you know. Um, but there is a, like a, a refusal co to contend with that. So you have Stacey Abrams, who was just appearing on the cover of Essence this month and who was trying to shore herself up in these kinds of ways. But God forbid there actually be a reckoning with what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah, yeah. It's just... Uh... It's very interesting. It's clear that, look, there are right. There are a lot of people out there who are voting, and they're voting, as we said earlier in the show, they're voting for the R or the D no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and that's certainly the game, you know, the, media, the partisan media and the pundits are playing. But the elections are, are made. They're, they're won or lost by that shrinking part of the country, but a part that exists, nevertheless, who sometimes will vote for Republican and sometimes will yeah. vote for Democrat. Those people still exist. Yes, there are not nearly as many of them. People have sorted themselves more, much more neatly than they used to be in the past, where you might you know, vote for a Democratic president because he looks good on TV, but you still like your local Republican official sure. or something, and you're going to vote for a, a moderate Republican in Massachusetts, but you're going to vote for like that sure. whole thing. We do less of that now, certainly, but there's still people who, if you speak to their issues, they're going to, you know, what they're, affect, what they're seeing in terms of the economy, in terms of crime, in terms of how, the, you know, what, what it is, or how they identify with the candidate, or what the candidate's personal strengths and weaknesses are. Those things still do matter because we're a very closely divided country. If we weren't a closely divided country, they wouldn't matter. But yeah, we are yeah. so closely divided that th those independent or moderate people in both parties who, who wander, who, who maybe, maybe they want Republican policies, maybe they, maybe they are motivated by what Republicans are saying about education or COVID or something else, sure. but and they don't like Trump. Yeah. And maybe that holds, yeah. and maybe like, I can't hold my nose and vote for a, a Trump person. There are people like that. That. Yeah, look, but for the Obama to Trump voters, uh, Trump yeah. would have never been president. They got fetishized hard and talked about in the media hard for like six months, and then bringing them up became like evidence of racism because somehow the implication was if someone right. voted for Obama and then for Trump, they couldn't right. be bigoted. But like, my who cares? economic anxiety, remember that? Yeah, one? like <laughs> at the end of the day, these racists, whoever, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> voted for the black man to be president. So why, why can't you as a party yeah. figure out how to tap into whatever made them want to make that kind of a choice? Democrats have thrown their hands up on that and we'll see what happens as a consequence in midterms. More rising after this. Well, the road to Congress had started to look more promising for Democrats this summer, but recent polling shows Republicans are bouncing back, and they've done so by zeroing in on crime rates, for one thing, which, of course, increased in some areas after the pandemic and during the pandemic. In Pennsylvania, GOP candidate for Senate Dr. Mehmet Oz attacked Democratic rival John Fetterman's record on crime, as well as his health. Fetterman pushed back on Oz's attacks on Joy Reid's The Readout on Tuesday. Let's watch that. It's the Oz rule. You know, when he's on TV, he's lying. And he lies about uh, my record on crime. But the truth is, is that, uh, is that we in Braddock, as mayor, in a community with significant gun violence issues, 
I ran to be mayor for that reason. And for five and a half years, we stopped the killing and the gun violence. We stopped it. This week, the Cook Political Report moved the Pennsylvania race from the leaning Democratic column back to toss-up. And then the Senate race in the battleground state of Wisconsin is also very tight. Republicans there are hammering lieutenant governor and Democratic candidate for Senate Mandela Barnes for being purportedly soft on crime. Democrats have tried to shake off the soft on crime profile, but will it be sufficient to sway voters' minds in their favor come November? The Hill's Julia Manchester joins us now to weigh in. Julia, welcome back to Rising. Thank you for having me, Robbie. So you were just telling me that you are really zeroing in on Pennsylvania, where ostensibly Republicans have what someone that everyone kind of concedes, including Republicans, is a really uniquely lousy candidate, Dr. Oz. But uh, you have seen the polls tightening up some, some. What, what explains that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Talking to Democrats and Republicans in Pennsylvania, the Cook political report shift was not a surprise to them. They said, look, as we get closer to Election Day, it's going to narrow because Pennsylvania is such a tight purple state. I mean, I think that President Trump in 2016 and President Biden in 2020 very narrowly both won the state. So it's going to be tough for either candidate that's running. However, I think most people on the Democratic side I talked to in maybe some independent independent observers would say, you know, John Fetterman probably has the better chance. Look, yeah. he's the lieutenant governor. You know, he doesn't necessarily have an incumbent's advantage, but he is known statewide in that way. Um, but we're seeing Dr. Oz, which is, and this is very fascinating, zero in on crime in particular. And we've seen Dr. Oz go to places like uh, neighborhoods in Philadelphia, in particular, the urban areas of Philadelphia, and talk about crime, talk about drug reform, that kind of a thing. And that's sort of at first caught my attention because you would expect a Republican candidate maybe not to go into the inner cities of mm -hmm. places, places that lean Democratic. And although I don't think the Oz campaign is any, under any illusion that they're going to win Philadelphia itself, I think it definitely projects this message that Republicans have nationally that they are zeroing in on crime. And he is saying that crime in areas like Philadelphia is high because of Democrats like John Fetterman. Yeah, and crime in Philadelphia is astronomical right now. It's it's as high as it, it's as high as it was like in the 90s. It's one of the worst affected cities right now by rising crime. Fetterman obviously is kind of held back at the moment from maybe making a full-throated defense of his policies or what he thinks because of his health issues that have I think really impacted his ability to um, to communicate. Have you seen you know that having an effect? Obviously, he's not doing. What did he agree to do? One debate, I think, with Oz or something, and that hasn't taken place yet. But he, he really he, his team seems to be keeping his appearances very limited. Yeah. So the one debate he has is actually by our parent company Nexstar in Harrisburg right. on October twenty fifth. They've gotten some pushback from that because Republicans say that's too late because early voting has already started, whereas uh, Fetterman and Democrats will say, well, that's the time when voters who are going to vote in person in general, the majority of voters, are really starting to pay attention to the race. So there's been some pushback there. You know, I would say that recently we actually have seen an uptick in Fetterman's appearances. I mean, is he doing events every single day? Not necessarily, but, you know, he's doing an interviews with MSNBC 
holding those rallies. It's still very controlled. And the campaign has said, look, you know, it's still a recovery process for him from the stroke he suffered from in May. But you are starting to see him take up those appearances. And I think he's going to have to. I mean, over the summer, his digital team did a very good job at, you know, essentially trolling Oz and trying mm -hmm. to keep the race in the headlines. I mean, we at The Hill were writing a number of stories on this race, despite the fact that it was the quiet period of the summer before the campaign. So um, they did a good job then, but you can't run a purely digital campaign less than 30 days out from Election Day. So Fetterman's going to have to start making these more public appearances. He is doing that, but maybe not to the extent that other candidates would. We're zeroing in on Pennsylvania, obviously, in part because this is one of a small number of races that are going to decide whether our 50-50 Senate ends up 51-49, 52-48, or stays 50-50, what's going to happen. Uh, you know, other races, obviously, we're looking at our Georgia, which has had a lot of news recently because of the um, scan, the alleged scandals surrounding um, Herschel Walker, which uh, I don't know it, it, what your sense of that is, whether that makes him, you know, even less likely to. Uh, it, it's, it's very close. My sense was that Raphael Warnock, the Democratic challenger, was a little bit ahead, probably more ahead now. Or what, do you think this is going to make much of a difference in the race? You know, it possibly could, maybe with uh, Democratic-leaning independent voters. Um, however, if you're concerned about inflation, crime, and the situation yeah. at the Southern border, which are three issues that Herschel Walker has been talking about. You know, I don't know if a personal um, issue like this will necessarily impact voters or sway voters. I will say I think Raphael Warnock is definitely in the lead. And you actually haven't seen Warnock and Democrats make that many public statements about this because they want mm -hmm. to, in their words, really focus on the issues. What I could see Warnock doing, what he has been doing, is focusing on the issue of abortion itself and abortion access. And maybe sort of tie this in, um, you know, to paint Walker as hypocritical. But I think right now in the closing stretch of the campaign, um, Democrats, and I would assume those on the Warnock campaign, would probably want that story to do the work itself instead of focusing on it. They want to be focusing on the issues on Warnock's record in the Senate. Yeah. And there was a lot of, um, obviously not in a defense of the underlying scandal, but I saw many Republican uh, pundits, uh, commentators saying, you know, what does it matter? We're you know, we're for limiting abortion. He's for that. That is the important issue. Raphael Warnock is not for limiting abortion. Mm -hmm. So really uh, encouraging the voters to overlook that. Probably you would expect that, there, you know, there are some people somewhere who might have voted for Herschel Walker, but are like, okay, this is one thing too many. I, yeah. I'm just, I'm going to stay home or something, right? Yeah, it's very, very possible. And, you know, on the issue of abortion, there was some polling that came out from Monmouth University yesterday, as well as uh, Reuters, that shows that abortion actually isn't even in the top five issues mm -hmm. among voters. I think in the Monmouth poll, it came in around seven. So I think Democrats, it's a good issue for their base. It's going to galvanize yeah. them, but I don't know if they can rely on it solely to get those independents. It's clear voters. this is coming down to inflation inflation, the economy more broadly, and crime, I think, really, just like you're looking at the uh, crime in especially places where things have gotten really bad. And, and some uh, people, some voters uh, do blame Democratic policies and that it's it's continues to be a thorn in the party side, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that the Democrats are in control, whether it's in the White House or uh, the Senate and the House, that's what I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans trying to, um, you know, tie it back to them, even though um, arguably in some of these areas, it's not necessarily the fault of the federal government. I'm curious to see how this plays in gubernatorial races and mayoral races. 
businesses across the country will have to see. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. All right, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. We thank really you. appreciate it. And we'll have more rising right after this. Experts predict the U.S. housing market is on the brink of a major decline. Now, the drop in home prices is expected to be the second biggest since the Great Depression. Mortgages are continuing to collapse, and economists say the housing market in major cities could see home prices drop by as much as 20 percent. Here to discuss what this can mean for buyers and sellers is co-host of the Odd Lots podcast on Bloomberg, Tracy Alloway. Welcome, Tracy. Thanks so much for having me. So help me understand, my perception was that so much of the high housing uh, costs right now were driven by the supply chain crisis, the fact that many people were trying to do renovations and the like during COVID, uh, and that combined with the fact that people just couldn't get the goods, principally lumber, to complete their projects, it was driving up the cost of house building and uh, exacerbating the supply issue that has been long existing. You know. Is that not still an issue? How does that factor into this prediction that uh, home prices are actually going to fall? Well, I think it was a big issue for the past two years. And in fact, if you look at a chart of housing starts versus finishes, you can see the gap between those two really widen. And that is because of the supply chain issues that you just described. It took much, much longer to actually finish houses. But that said, you know, the U.S. has a structural shortage of housing. And that is really, you know, leading to some of the higher house prices that we've seen over the past couple of years. That combined with, you know, demand for work from home space, lots of people moving out to the suburbs. So you have this big demographic shift. Now, that said, the key question as we enter this environment of higher interest rates is whether or not things are actually different this time, whether or not the structural shortage of inventory is going to be enough to offset the negative impact from those higher interest rates. Well, but help me understand this then, uh, because, right, we talk a lot on this program about the, the downsides, obviously, of having housing prices be too high. It's harder for people to buy. I certainly understand that somebody who owns a house doesn't want to see the value of it decrease at all. They want to see the value of it go up. But is what you're describing, I mean, that sounds like it could be, in some sense, a good thing or making it easier for people uh, to, to buy homes. Well, that's what you would sort of hope. You would hope that first-time home buyers finally get a chance to come in and buy at a lower price point. You know, a lot of people, a lot of millennials, of course, have been waiting in the wings for more affordable house prices. That is not, unfortunately, what we have seen so far as interest rates head higher. In fact, we've seen housing affordability, so that's, you know, the cost of a mortgage down payment tempered by average salaries. We have seen affordability deteriorate at the fastest pace on record, which is really stark and unfortunately is a huge negative for people who are hoping to get on the housing ladder in this environment. It basically means that so far, the increased cost of mortgage rates has outweighed any softening in actual listing prices that we've seen in the market. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what's so confusing about this story. It does seem ultimately that, I mean, I think that Robbie's point is right, that if in fact demand is continues to be so high because of these uh, legacy issues that we have with mm. uh, new ha homes not being built. It's hard to imagine what would incentivize home prices to drop when there are, you know, however many uh, people looking for homes versus how many homes are actually being built or available on the market. And I wonder, I mean, can you speak to whether or not the fact of so many um, venture capital funds, uh, you know, kind of Wall Street banks buying up housing property, how, if at all, is that affecting these dynamics? 
Yeah, so I know the story about private equity coming in and scooping up single family housing has been a very popular one, especially in financial media. Uh, that said, you know, a lot of the uh, investment owners, people who buy houses purely for investment, like that category also includes, you know, just an individual who might buy more than one house in order to rent it out. There are a lot of baby boomers, for instance, who've been doing that. But now you mentioned legacy issues, and that is a really good way of putting it. Because a lot of what we're seeing now is basically the aftershock of the 2008 subprime crisis. You know, we saw back then we saw credit availability absolutely soar. We saw a huge buildup in housing supply. Then everything fell apart and we saw credit restricted. We saw home builders really retreat from building new units in the markets. And that's contributed to the structural shortage that we're talking about. We saw increased capital requirements for banks, which is actually now contributing to higher mortgage rates. So the difference between benchmark interest rates, like on the 10-year U.S. Treasury, and the average mortgage rate, which is now about 7%, that spread is also at a record. And that's because private investors like banks are constrained from coming in and buying up mortgage bonds. And so you're really seeing a lot of the fallout from 2008 passed on to this new generation of would-be homeowners. So I would expect, based on what you're describing, there to be a, a geographic or a kind of location difference to the changing in housing prices, uh, partly because of, of work from home from pandemic-related uh, changes. You know, people, uh, some, to some degree, fewer people need to feel, probably for their employment, congregating in cities. They can move to the suburbs or they can even move you know, to another state where they can get more space. So you might see... Um, housing prices rise in those kinds of neighborhoods or in those kind of places. So prices rising there because there's more competition, but then maybe falling in city real estate markets. Uh, that would be my fingers crossed. I live in Washington, D.C. I would love prices to come down a little bit. I might finally buy a home. But my understanding was previously the supply of new houses like in a place like D.C. is just so, the supply is so constricted that it was pretty inflexible. But, but so, so what uh, phenomenon, what, what impact could work from home be having on this? And will we see kind of regional or, you know, rural versus suburban versus urban kind of difference here? Yeah, I mean, that is certainly the expectation from a lot of housing experts. The idea here is that the places where you've seen the most froth in the market might actually be the most vulnerable as interest rates start to rise. And this is also where you have to start thinking about the general economic outlook, right? So I saw Moody's, for instance, yesterday, their chief economist was talking about how they're predicting a 10% drop in house prices, but it could be up to 20% if we actually get a major recession. And again, if you think of places like San Francisco, we know that house prices in San Francisco have been pretty frothy for the past few years. And the tech sector, you know, again, San Francisco, a lot of tech workers are living out there. The tech sector is one of the most vulnerable to interest rate rises as well. And we've already seen a number of layoffs, um, you know, wages going down for tech workers. They're some of the most hardest hit from interest rate rises so far. And that, again, is heaping pressure on that particular locality. And so if you consider, you know, you're going to have to look at almost city by city, but you're also going to have to look at almost sector by sector. Who's actually living in those homes? Are they in industries that are most exposed to a potential downturn? 
I just want to follow up on that uh, earlier point you made about private equity. You know, that ProPublica investigation showed that private equity firms account for 85% of Freddie Mac's 20 biggest financing purchases um, in, this, in this sector by a single borrower. And we, I talked mm -hmm. in a radar last week about how the New York Times and some other institutions do seem to try to be uh, creating some slippage between the idea of a mom-and-pop landlord that earns a couple of extra properties in addition to the one that they live in, and, and individuals who own organizations, corporations that own dozens, hundreds, thousands of homes, and are really basically have scooped in, swooped in rather, after uh, the pandemic, and really bought a lot of properties as uh, costs were down in those first days of massive unemployment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that reality, combined with the supply crisis that is ongoing, I'm having a really hard time understanding how there are parallels to what happened in 2008 and what provoked that particular crisis. I, I don't believe it is that you're saying, the case that you're saying that there is a, um, you know, there's, a, there's been a lending, you know, people have been given uh, mortgages that they can't afford and that was a precipitated, precipitating cause, these um, uh, coercive, manipulative uh, mm -hmm. mortgages. That doesn't seem to be what's happening here. So can you help me to explain, uh, understand that dynamic? Sure, sure. So just to make this absolutely clear, it is, diff it is a different environment to what we saw pre-2008. So credit availability is nowhere near the levels that it used to be. Inventory is structurally short. Banks are more restricted in what they can and cannot do when it comes to investing in mortgages. Now, the big factor here, I really think is inventory. And, you know, you've been talking a lot about private equity coming in and scooping up houses that does take some things off the market, turns right. them into short-term rentals. We've been talking about single family owners, people who have seen their stock portfolios, their real estate portfolios all go up over the past five years. Many of them have purchased additional houses for that rental income. And then the other factor that's going to come in as interest rates get higher is something called the lock-in effect. So most Americans have a fixed rate mortgage now. So they're not as exposed when interest rates start going higher unless they decide to sell and then take out a new mortgage. And the vast majority of people who locked in a house at something like 3% last year I do not think are going to be that inclined to sell now and potentially take out a mortgage at something like 7%. So unless we get a wave of really distressed sellers on the market, it's almost a certainty that inventory is going to remain pretty tight. Mm -hmm. And that's going to help put a floor under prices. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Which, which is why it's just difficult to understand why there would be a prediction that how that prices would fall at all. It seems like wishful thinking. Um, <laughs> Especially for the it depends if you're a homeowner or not, right? It depends what side of, of home ownership you yeah. sit on. But what I will say is, I right. you know I saw the Moody's forecast this week. They're forecasting a decline of ten percent. There are plenty of other people out there who have something much more moderate um, in their estimates. So Morgan Stanley, for instance, is looking at minus three percent for 2023. But again, a lot of that depends on what happens to inventory and what happens to the wider job market. Mm. Bring those prices down, I say. <laughs> Thank you so much hey, for I joining just bought us. this year, so, yeah. you know. Uh, well, I, so you're going to stay in it for a while, so it's okay, right? <laughs> if there's a downturn right now, allow some some rest of us to get a, to get a house, and then it'll, then it'll rise over time. How's that sound? F fingers crossed. We hope that Evan can enjoy a house that only ever goes up in value. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'll have more rising right after this.
We have an update to a story we told you about earlier this week out of Georgia. According to the Daily Beast, Senate candidate Herschel Walker paid for a woman to have an abortion. And while Walker maintains that he doesn't know the woman making these claims, new reporting from the Daily Beast alleges that the woman involved is the mother of one of his own children. So according to the Daily Beast reporting, the woman wanted to remain anonymous, and while she says she's been a good sport after Walker's denial, she could no longer keep this information from the public. Herschel Walker and his campaign have denied the claims. They released a statement saying, quote, as I have already said, there is no truth to this or any other Daily Beast report. Herschel Walker apparently has record fundraising off of this news, despite what many people thought was going to be a damning moment to his campaign. And of course, the relationship between fundraising and what voters actually think is not a one-to-one. We saw, for example, in the 2020 primary, Michael Bloomberg spend more money than God on a race and not get very far, except for, I don't know, I think Guam and Guam. So, uh, and other people have pointed out that at this stage in the uh, race, you're let, you're, you often see a spike in fundraising, so it's not clear what the causation is there. But many folks have pointed out that while obviously Democratic candidates are pro-choice, Herschel Walker is being called out for his hypocrisy here insofar as he has been touting himself as a family values person, right. as someone who is opposed to the right to choose when he seems to have different rules for himself. What do you make of it? Yeah, look, you can obviously have been okay with abortion or support abortion and then change your mind about it. But like, there's a lot more going on here um, you know, that would tarnish a kind of family man image. Uh, uh, Christian Walker, his son, who you know I don't think is trying to sabotage his campaign out of malice because he was supportive of it and, mm -hmm. and it ha is an outspoken conservative. Mm -hmm. um, you know, th there could be more going on there, obviously, but but he has really turned on and denounced his father for uh, for alleged abuse that he suffered. Um, he talks about how him and his mother had to move multiple times. Mm -hmm. He alludes to some kind of potential physical abuse mm -hmm. or verbal abuse. So, I, I, yeah, I, I think it, you know, it, it would be hard to, I think you can't, like, hand wave this away or say, well, it was a long time ago or, well, it was like there's just too much to it. Now, conservatives, I've seen many of them uh, kind of responding to this and saying, well, look, you know, I may not approve or whatever, but, um, but I want to limit abortion, and he would vote to limit abortion, or I trust him to, limit, to vote to limit abortion, and his opponent will not, so I'm going to vote for him. Which, uh, you know, maybe we're just all admitting now, like, if you're an R, you're an R. If you're a D, you're a D. These people are pretty indistinguishable and are pretty down party lines, right? I mean, yeah. John Fetterman could, we don't know what his health situation is. It could be much worse than it is. It could be, he could be barely able to function, yeah. right? And Democrats are going to vote for him because he's a D. Yeah. Dianne Feinstein is well beyond the ability to have any, to communicate thoughtfully about legislation. We don't really know what's going on, but she seems very much out of it. But she's a D. And that's yeah. just, we're just all being transparent yeah. and transactional now. If it, you're a D, you want a D. If you're an R, you want an R. And it yeah. doesn't, nothing else really matters. I mean, the real question here is what happened in the primary? What? And I, I yeah, now that's where you know the, the the actual left of the Democratic Party or people who don't even identify as Democrats anymore are very frustrated. The Democratic Party seems to be more invested in preventing progressives from getting on the ballot, people who mm -hmm. actually are populist from getting on the ballot, uh, than they are protecting the likes of the Diane Feinsteins who shuffle their way through these terms way past the age that anybody thinks they can actually be effective. Um, but let's also look at a clip we have here of Herschel Walker being asked to respond directly to this uh, controversy, including some of the statements from his own son. Your son surprised a lot of us uh, because he's been...
tweeted uh, positive things for you. He's an influencer, a conservative. Uh, and this is what he came out and said after this revelation and your appearance with Sean. Listen. My intention is don't lie about your life at the expense of me, my mom, and all of the people that you've affected throughout your life. You don't get to pretend you're some moral family guy. You don't get to pretend all these things. Talk policy, talk normal, do not lie. So he saw that and says, you're lying, Herschel. What do you say about your son? Is he telling the truth? Well, I love my son unconditionally, and I, that's where I've always been. I always love him unconditionally. You know, he graduated college uh, a couple of months ago. He's now a young man doing his own thing, but his father's always there for him. I always will be for any, any of my kids, and I love him. I always support him, and I always have supported him, and I always will, and I love him unconditionally. But he's doing uh, tremendous so damage to you. That's pretty typical of the kind of response he's given so far. He was confronted also about the, um, there's a signed get well card that he allegedly gave to the woman who got an abortion. Uh, he denied, you know, he said, I, I sent a lot of cards to a lot of people who knows what's really going on here. His son has been tweeting nonstop for the last few days. Uh, he tweeted, every family member of Herschel Walker asked him not to run for office because we all knew some of his past. Every single one, he decided to give us the middle finger and air out all of his dirty laundry in public while simultaneously lying about it. I'm done. And I'm done, I think, really reflects the fact that um, Christian was defend, you know, defended and supported his father up until this point. It's hard to kind of argue that he is ideologically opposed in terms of like broader conservative right. politics or anything like that. I think the tipping point really was his feeling that he was being thrown under the bus in some way by uh, Herschel's, Herschel Walker's denial of some of his relationships with these women. Yeah. And look, you know, this is it, 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 this is uncomfortable. I, I don't think anyone, I certainly don't relish. I'm probably, there are people in media who do relish this. Ooh, a scandal. Ooh, yeah. sex related. Ooh, like how fun to talk about. Um, I feel bad for people because families are messy and relationships are messy. And I, I would, I th it, it sucks to have this like litigated and discussed in front of the national media forever, like drama between a son and a father, et cetera. Uh, but, I mean, the reality is he chose to run for Senate. He could have and should have anticipated with a significant, uh, so many significant mm -hmm. things like this that it would be, that it would be scrutinized. I think, uh, Christian Walker, I think at one point mentioned that, like, we didn't want you to run because we were afraid of having this stuff kind of made public. Mm -hmm. um, so, obviously that can be taken too far because... You know, I mean, this new thing where, like, if you've ever said or done anything wrong in your whole life, you're going to be, like, disqualified from having right, office. Right, but this is a little bit no, different this than... this is more than that. It's not it's just, like, a bad allegations tweet when you domestic were 13 abuse, or it's something. Rank hypocrisy. Yeah. And I do think the discomfort is coming through when you see some of the family values conservatives, like Ben Shapiro. He tweeted out, it is so very telling that the supposedly horrible thing, supposedly horrible thing that Herschel Walker did, according to the media, was support the pro-life position, uh, not knock up a woman and pay for her abortion, because if you were pro-choice, this would not be a story. And obviously, to me, that says, no, the problem for the liberals is hypocrisy, not that an abortion was paid for, but the fact that he would want to deny everybody else right. in the country those same kinds of And, re and really, the, the more, whatever the alleged kind of violent or abusive accusations oh, are, which I do not know the truth yeah. of, to be clear. That is actually a more, much more serious issue. Yeah. But um, we will regrettably continue to follow this if there are more updates and have more rising right after this. And the reservoirs out west are, are, are down to almost zero. We're in a situation where the Colorado River looks more like a stream. There's a lot going on. 
And I think the one thing this has finally ended is a discussion about whether or not there's climate change. We should do something about it. That was President Biden commenting on climate change during his visit to Florida yesterday, surveying the damage from Hurricane Ian. During his visit, he said Hurricane Ian and other extreme weather events put the question of whether there is climate change to bed. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has approached the climate issue with climate adaptation, or as Time Magazine writes, paying for Florida to adapt to a changing climate but not addressing the root causes of that climate change. So what does this mean for Republican leaders' future approach to climate change? Joining us now to weigh in on all of this and more is the chief national spokesperson for the Sunrise Movement, John Paul Mejia, and author of Apocalypse Never, Michael Schellenberg. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you so much. So, uh, uh, Mr. Schellenberg, I'd like to start with you because, and I, I thought of you, I know a little bit of your work on this issue. We, we were having debates about uh, how climate change is affecting extreme weather, et cetera. And I think you depart a little bit from what some environmentalists or, or uh, kind of climate change uh, activists uh, think about the issue. So what is your thinking about how to uh, you know, prepare and guard against whatever impacts climate change is going to have? Sure. Well, Climate change is real. It's being caused by humans. We should do something about it. We live in a particular temperature band. We've built our civilization around it. We, all else being equal, we shouldn't want to change it. Of course, all else is not equal. Um, our prosperity and security and our resilience to extreme weather are due to our use of energy in general and fossil fuels in particular. These hurricanes are, you cannot attribute them to climate change. There has been no increase in landfalling hurricanes um, over climate relevant timelines, meaning over the last century. There has been an increase from the 70s and 80s, but the 70s and 80s was a very low period. So when you look at a full century, you do not see an increase. There's been an increase in satellite recordings of hurricanes. We've gotten better at recording hurricanes, but when you factor that in, there's been no increase. And so it's irresponsible to suggest that there's been an increase in hurricanes at all, much less that's from climate change. And that's both for all hurricanes, but also for major hurricanes, category four and five hurricanes. So it's also incorrect to say that climate change has intensified hurricanes. There is a prediction by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that we will see a 5% intensification of hurricanes, but that will be due to the fact that the total number of hurricanes is expected to decline by 25%. So the, the, in, the increase in intensity is just a residue of the fact that you've had an overall decline larger than the decline of category four and five. John Paul, I wanted to respond to that. You know, I looked into this and I saw climate reports that did show that there is an increase in intensity in hurricanes. I think the claim about the frequency stands, but the predominant uh, argument that I've seen made is that there has been, in a short-term way, an increase in frequency, but more substantively, an increase in intensity of stronger and more damage-causing hurricanes. What's the truth here, in your view? Well, you know, as someone who grew up in Miami, Florida, a frontline community when it comes to the climate crisis, it's hard to square that, you know, the effects of a changing climate aren't becoming more intense as we lag on any form of action to meaningfully address it. Um, I think that what we've seen over the past few years is that um, these intensifying storms and in other places they take on other forms of climate effects, droughts, wildfires, and so on, are becoming more apparent and more intense and are wreaking havoc over the lives of loads of people across this country and across this world, particularly folks who are most vulnerable, working class, poor people, people of color, 
color. And um, that is where the real intensity is being felt. Um, there is a lack of action um, up to this point on uh, the climate crisis. Uh, we have devastating effects all across Florida, all over the Pacific Northwest when it came to heat waves that were historic over the past couple of years. The science is in, yet what actually seems to be happening or the only sort of <laughs> action here that seems to be out is that by our elected leaders. So I actually think that, you know, it is of minimum responsibility for President Biden to be talking about an issue like the climate crisis when disasters like these occur. We should be ramping up our action, if anything. John Paul, what about the argument, though, that what's causing more, you know, seemingly larger impact is that there's more development on the coast than there used to be, that there's more cost to these hurricanes because people have not adapted per the language that's now being used by the Republican Party, and rather than that there's an increased intensity? Well, you know, I think I don't bear part to... I, I haven't lived in the places of Miami, which are incredibly well adapted and very elevated that have modernized infrastructure. I come from a pretty working class neighborhood. And to be frank with you, the costs that are enormous, that are often unreported when it comes to a storm devastating a community are those which are most vulnerable. I remember Hurricane Irma only a few years back devastating the place that I knew and loved. I went off to the home of a more affluent friend for resources and protection because I had nowhere to stay. And when I came back, I noticed that the contours and the path of destruction of the storm was carved along the lines of the inequalities of race and class. And that's something that we should pay attention to. Often places go discounted when uh, the folks who live there are folks who have been historically left behind. Let me just say one thing. There's been 15 Category 4 and 5 hurricanes over the last 100 years. Ten of them occurred before 1965 since. It's not the case that we're not doing anything on, carbon, on climate change. Carbon emissions declined 22% between 2005 and 2020, mostly as a result of moving from coal to gas. John's organization opposes natural gas. If you want to reduce carbon emissions in the short term, you got to go natural to gas. Sorry, guys, I got to go. Thank you for having me. We'll have more rising right after this. The satire site The Onion has filed a Supreme Court brief in support of a man who was arrested and prosecuted for making fun of his local police department on Facebook. According to the Associated Press, lawyers for The Onion wrote, As the Globe's premier paradists, The Onion's writers also have a self-serving interest in preventing political authorities from imprisoning humorists. This brief is submitted in the interest of mitigating their future punishment. According to Bloomberg, the brief includes dramatic hyperbole and false declarations. Lawyers for the outlet went on to explain that filing a parody brief was the point. Joining us now to break down this story is senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, Patrick Giacomo. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. So this story has everything. It has parody. It has big kind of First Amendment claims. Uh, can you start by telling us what the underlying incident was uh, that provoked this lawsuit in the first place? Sure. So this case arises out of aspiring comedic writer Anthony Novak sitting at a bus stop waiting for his bus and deciding to put a parody account of his local police department on Facebook, which he did. And he posted six different posts. All of them were obvious parody. For instance, one was a post from the parody police department saying that 
it was now illegal in the city to feed any homeless people, hoping that they would all leave from starvation. Uh, another one advertised a pedophile reform event where pedophiles could solve some puzzles and at the end would be made honorary police officers. <laughs> so these were things that unless the Parma Police Department has some real problems, no reasonable person would have thought were real. Uh, nevertheless, the very stern police came on local television that evening and threatened that they were doing a criminal investigation to the page. And so 12 hours after he'd published it, Anthony took it down. But that was just the beginning of what actually happened, because over the course of the next three weeks, police got a bunch of arrest warrants and search warrants. And ultimately, about a month after Anthony had taken the page down and without ever having reached out to him to ask him to take it down, frankly, they arrested Anthony. They searched his apartment. They seized his and his roommate's electronics. They jailed him for several days before he made bail. And ultimately, they prosecuted him under a crime that they and prosecutors came up with in violation of an Ohio hacking statute that makes it a crime to use a computer to, quote, interrupt or disrupt police operations. Their theory here being that Anthony had used a computer to post on Facebook, true, and the disruption of police services was because a handful of people, 11, had called the non-emergency police line to tattle on the Facebook page. Hmm. And the government in Ohio argued this was a, a, a disruption of police services that was a felony under Ohio law, and that was where all of this came from. Hmm. That's just so shocking and inappropriate. I think everyone, uh, such an obvious violation of the First Amendment to, you know, hassles. Like, this cannot, it's supposed to be that this cannot happen in the United States of America because we have ironclad protections for just this kind of speech. So is this, is this case as cut and dry as it would appear to, you know, anyone who has even a passing familiarity of what the First Amendment protects? Well, it should be. Uh, unfortunately, the reason it isn't is because of the doctrine of qualified immunity. And so in this case, Anthony sued the officers and the department for violating his First and Fourth Amendment rights, freedom of speech and freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. And the case, uh, through a very long course, wound its way up to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals sitting in Cincinnati. And that court went through all of the First and Fourth Amendment discussion, and it said, obviously, parity is protected by the First Amendment. This is a core historic principle, like The Onion pointed out. But because of qualified immunity, there was no clearly established law that said that when Anthony deleted Facebook comments calling his parody fake, spoiling the punchline, that that was protected. It wasn't clearly established. And therefore, the officers got qualified immunity, and the probable cause for his arrest was supported going from there. Um, and so this, this case, which is one that now that we at the Institute for Justice are petitioning to the Supreme Court about, which is what the Onion's brief is supporting, really goes to show that notwithstanding the fact that everybody, police officers and judges alike, understand that this sort of government criticism is protected as a core principle of the First Amendment, qualified immunity essentially means that people like Anthony, people like you and me, might have rights that are written down on parchment in the Constitution, but those rights are not actually enforceable in American courts. I think that's so important because there is so much discussion in this country all the time, oftentimes by the conservative part of this country about First Amendment issues and overreach. But ironically, qualified immunity has been a sticking point in terms of criminal justice reform efforts. Even those criminal justice reform efforts that ha there have a lot of bipartisan consensus, the George uh, Floyd Justice uh, Act was derailed in large part because they couldn't get any Republican buy-in on qualified immunity. And when you see it in a case like this, which is obviously a much less serious case in terms of 
you know, people's life and liberty interests than a lot of the kind of criminal justice context we're normally talking about it in. You really do see how it's used, how it's weaponized over and over again to keep police officers from playing by a different set of rules than the rest of the public. And in instances like this, when you see a police department literally bullying a member of the public over their ability to express themselves freely using a platform which has had its own controversies about the speechiness that's allowed on Facebook, and basically being able to get away with that bullying because of the qualified because of qualified immunity. I wonder, do you think this could potentially start to concretize for people why this particular uh, insulation against consequences that the cops have is a real broader social problem? Yeah, I actually do. Uh, at the Institute for Justice, we've been fighting a bunch of immunity doctrines for years now, uh, chief among them qualified immunity. And as you said, the sort of pro-police crowd, the reflexively pro-qualified immunity crowd, has done a good job in the narrative of selling qualified immunity as something that it isn't, which is a necessary protection for police. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind is that qualified immunity protects all government workers, not just police. So mayors, governors, uh, bureaucrats, code enforcers, IRS agents, people that, you know, typically conservatives don't University have the administrators. most for. Yeah, exactly. School administrators. And this case is a great example of a situation that I think will resonate with uh, conservatives and liberals and everyone in between because they see the situation. And this is not the typical uh, case where you need to cut slack for police to have breathing room. This isn't a late night with rain and a maybe I saw a gun. Mm. This is a weeks long <laughs> campaign to arrest someone who made fun of the police. And it's worth mm. noting that this decision, which was written by a respected conservative judge in the Sixth Circuit, is diametrically opposed by a recent decision from another respected conservative judge in Texas who denied qualified immunity to police who arrested a Facebook journalist for asking them questions and said, these things are so obvious. There's no need for qualified immunity to provide fair warning to police because what they were doing was plainly wrong and they probably knew it was wrong. And the same is true here. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, the work that you and the Institute are doing on this and other speech-related qualified immunity cases. Uh, we so appreciate having you on. And, and we should say so before, we, before we wrap that we kind of buried the lead a little bit insofar as the brief is funny. Like the, the Onion <laughs> yeah. filed a brief written also in parody format, which I think there's, there will be some interesting questions about whether or not that it makes it more effective, more people are going to pay attention to it, whether there's some social pressure here that will, you know, in, in order of the public benefit or whether or not people will treat it as a gag. But definitely go and check it out uh, if you haven't looked at it already. And thank you uh, again, Patrick, for joining us. Thank you so much. We'll have more rising for you after this. Swedish investigators' early findings into the Nord Stream pipeline explosions have only, quote, strengthened the suspicions of gross sabotage. Investigators say evidence of detonations were found. However, a suspect has not yet been identified. Meanwhile, Russian officials have claimed they were informed through diplomatic channels that there are no plans to include Moscow in the investigation. Hmm. All right, so obviously there have been a lot of people speculating over the course of the last week or so about who's responsible. And to the extent that there is evidence that indicates things one way or another, the Occam's razor of it all does seem to point in the direction of the U.S. What do you make of this? I don't think that. I think the Occam's razor points to Russia. Why is um, that? I, look, I know I, I, make, I have no illusions about the things the U.S. has done to interfere illicitly in other countries. We have a long history of that, absolutely. It would be 
I'm not saying it's impossible. I, 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 do, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. I absolutely understand why people think it mm -hmm. might be the U.S. I think it, I think it might be the U.S. Mm -hmm. I, I have listened to what our officials have said that would give every indication that could be. And yes, we have sounded happy to capitalize on this, this setback for the Russia to Germany energy project. That said, I think it would be nuts if we blew up their pipeline, our ally, Germany, that would be an act of sabotage that I would, at this stage of geopolitics, put past what, U.S. Why? Officials. What's Germany going to do? What are any of them? The, the, the whole point of the you know, unipolar it's nearly state, an act of American war. hegemony, is that nobody can really do anything to us, and so we act with impunity all across the globe. It's right. what's we so do incredible. That, we do that in Latin America. We do that in, we but do it's it's incredible. in Germany. Okay, so that is my point. That what's incredible to you is that we might do it. Yes. To a European power, yes. like a, a big global power, yes. as opposed to yep. I don't know Venezuela, yes. Cuba, that is exactly or even what Russia, another global power. I might oh, add. Okay, but so doing this is wild, and, and we all are agreeing this was an act of deliberate sabotage. Mm -hmm, that's, that's what, what everybody says. seems to be saying. For anyone to have done this is pretty out there, outside the bounds of like what makes sense for state actors to do. Um, the state actor on the global in the world, in, in the stage right now that is doing things that are outside the bounds of like rational what should be done is Russia. Um, it, this is very much in keeping with Putin's sudden decision to have this annexation referendum in, uh, in Ukraine, like in the midst of the, a war that is suddenly going bad for him. It's, it's, shake, it's shaking the table a little bit. It's overthrowing the chessboard. Um, does it make a lot of sense for them? No, but that, they are the actor who are doing things that don't totally make sense. Right okay, now. so what do you make then of this famous clip that's now circulated all over the place of uh, Joe Biden giving this speech, standing next to I don't remember what Russian, uh, what German official rather, whether it was the PM or, or who was it, but standing next to some high-ranking German diplomatic official and saying, you know, there are ways, there are ways to stop the pipeline if it comes to that. There are ways. There will be. Uh, we there will be no longer. A Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. The, there's also this Condoleezza Rice clip that people were circulating, it's talking about the strategic necessity of, of disrupting oil flow from Russia. All of this evidence, there was the, uh, the Polish politician who's married to an American what, State Department official who tweeted out immediately after the, yeah. the, 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 bombing, the, the disruption was announced, thank you, USA. All of that you think is coincidence? I mean, there, again, there's no obvious explanation for why this occurred. There's yeah. no like, oh, that's what it's got to be. So I'm just trying to look like who is doing things that may, this would be, I'm not, I, I'm not putting it past us. I'm not saying it can't be us. Yeah. Um, it would still be pretty wild. Look, I appreciate your skepticism. I, I had questions too. So I asked a gray zone journalist and frequent guest of Rising, Aaron Mate, about these theories on uh, today's episode of Bad Faith Podcast, actually. And uh, let's run a clip that shows the evidence and how it pans out in his view. If you look at the map of where the explosions were, they're, they're a few hundred miles away, at least, from Russia. They're not on the Russian area of the pipeline. Uh, they're near the waters of Denmark. And it's a lot harder for Russian 
naval operatives to access the waters of Denmark, off of Denmark, than it is to access the waters off of Russia. So that's that's a great that's a great point. Yeah, they invested billions of dollars in this, and uh, this was a very lucrative project for Russia, and also a, a project that would I think you know help Russia, and that if, again, if they have closer ties via energy to the rest of Europe. It makes it more difficult to impose sanctions on Russia and to mm-hmm. engage in conflict with Russia. So why Russia would want to blow up uh, this for, this pipeline, which previously was recognized as, as its main form of leverage, makes no sense, especially when everybody knows that Germany has always had cold feet about this Ukraine proxy war. All right. So what do you make of okay, that? So I appreciate Aaron's perspective. Love the guy. We've had him on the guest, uh, had him on the show a lot. But... So Putin's interest and Russia's interest are not necessarily the same thing. Yes, of course it's better for Russia to be part of the European community and to transport gas via vis-a-vis this pipeline to Germany. But he's saying, like, you know, Russia, it would be better for Russia if they had, like, closer relations to their, to European, other other European powers, and this pipeline was supposed to help facilitate that. Yeah, but you know what else, like, put their reputation with the rest of Europe in danger? When they freaking invaded Ukraine. And and by they, I mean Vladimir Putin. So you can't just say, like, well, yeah, if they were doing things that made sense, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have done that. Well, if they're doing things that made sense, they wouldn't have... They wouldn't be losing a war against Ukraine that is isolating the rest of Europe so from them. The, the whole point is, and this is the same conversation we just had with respect to OPEC and Saudi Arabia. The whole point is that there are oftentimes, there are very bad people who do things that we don't agree with from an ethical perspective, but we kowtow and we do business with them because at the end of the yeah. day, oil is king. The same situa- It's the same situation for Germany. And the reason why Biden made those statements back in January or whatever it was before the conflict started, when he acknowledged the strategic implications of Nord Stream 2 and standing next to a German official said, there are ways, you know, the question basically, if I recall it correctly, pointed out that it is in Germany's interest to be able to access this pipeline. It is in Germany's interest and Europe's interest to be able to have more access to fuel, especially heading into winter when fuel costs yeah. are high. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how uh, Liz Trust and, and Britain have a cap on uh, oil costs because they understand what a political uh, bomb it is for people in their country to have to pay these incredibly high gas prices as a consequence of this ongoing conflict in Ukraine. And we have had reporting after reporting after reporting about how much this conflict was instigated at the hand of U.S. State Department officials and not necessarily something that the allies in Europe necessarily want to be a part of. It's not necessarily as geopolitically strategic for them to do the same thing. So for all of those reasons, I don't understand why it's clearly, it could clearly be the case that Germany is being strong-armed by the United States into you know, ideologically, yes, no one wants the invasion of Russia. But at the end of the day, just like we keep doing business with uh, Saudi Arabia, despite them killing American journalists and, and instigating a war in Yemen and causing famine and, and destruction, they would happily continue doing, or not happily, but grudgingly continue doing uh, business with Russia because otherwise their people freeze to death or have to pay sky high oil prices. It's the same thing. I know, but right, I, I'm not saying that's impossible. That is perfectly plausible. But then we get it. I, I just don't want to ever get into this weird place where we're like, yeah, the U.S. is doing all these nefarious things. They're so bad, which is true. But like, that is true of so many governments. And and there's the government, there's the state actor, there's the actual political figure, and there's what the state apparatus wants, and there's what the actual people want, and these are necess- these are different interests. Uh, governments do, we are not alone in doing dumb, counterproductive, destructive sure, violence. as things. Trump said, and there's a lot of murderers right, everywhere. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm saying we should probably look with some suspicion. There should probably be a cloud of nefarious intent on the nation that's invading the other nation right now. Look, it's completely possible that it's a false flag that 
Russia, you know, went to the other end of the pipeline to yeah, blow up. Right. Of the course they're going to blow. Like, all of that is possible, but it's also true, you know, if you watch the full clip and you listen to the full episode, there's a discussion of, you know, uh, the American, American military testing charges or NATO troops testing charges in the water nearby where the explosion happened uh, around the time of the explosion happening. There's just so much evidence that is out there that casts suspicion on the United States. And for the United States not to have addressed any of that, despite there being so much news coverage over all of these moments that really come off as admissions from Condoleezza Rice, from Joe Biden himself, from you know, all of these, all these figures who would be in the know. It's, it's telling at the very least that they don't seem to feel the need to address that level of discourse or well, even make a, a denial. Even a totally make a denial. Like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, we'll continue to following it. Obviously, I don't know what happened. You don't know what happened. Nope. The Swedish Just investigators don't know what happened, except for that we know it was sabotage and not an oopsie-daisy. Not an oopsie-daisy. <laughs> Mr. Colonel Mustard in the uh, conservatory <laughs> with the candlestick, mm -hmm. with the uh, with the submarine, <laughs> the submarine <laughs> torpedoes. <laughs> All right, more Wait. rising uh, right after this. Stay with us. Elon Musk's Twitter controversy over the state of the war in Ukraine was back in headlines yesterday after Senator Lindsey Graham called the tech CEO out. Quote, with all due respect to Elon Musk, and I do respect him, I would suggest he needs to understand the facts of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. While we're at it, maybe the Congress should revisit the electric vehicle tax credit boondoggle. It is where the credit is now uh, solely benefiting electric vehicle manufacturers who have increased prices equal to the tax credit. Musk responded in part, assuming you believe that the will of the people matters, we should in any given conflict region support the will of those who live there. Most of, the, most of Ukraine unequivocally wants to be part of Ukraine, but some eastern portions have Russian majorities and prefer Russia. So I thought this was a pretty smart reply, actually, from, mm. from Elon Musk, um, making a, a reasonable point. Like, yes, most of Ukraine does not, did not want to be invaded, does not want to be part of Russia. Zelensky is very popular, and what Russia is doing there is unconscionable. But it is true that some of those easternmost regions had a, had a willing, a, a desire, a strong desire to be part of Russia. And it does get into a kind of, and then set aside the, you know, Lindsey Graham kind of, I, I can't, I can't risk offending you <laughs> right. or your fans. It's so obsequious. <laughs> I do, I promise, I really do respect you. Please don't hurt me on Twitter. Please yeah. don't send your Twitter words after me. <laughs> but, um, I mean, look, self-determination is an interesting question because I think m many of us would, in theory at least, say, yes, that is correct. Mm -hmm. That, uh, I mean, right, I don't want to force a population of people to be affiliate, to be under one government or under uh, one country if they want to be under another. Now, of course, we could say that until we're blue in the face, but like if, you know, I don't know, I'm from, if the state of Michigan said we would rather be part of Canada, that would like never, like the United States wouldn't let them do that. I mean, Texas so. has been trying. Well, Look. they haven't let them do that, and they haven't, or even smaller levels, like on my, what if my apartment building, we all agree we don't want to pay taxes in the United States, fine, we don't need your police services or your whatever, we'll just form our own little, little micronation, like that would also not be allowed. So there's, so, so. I actually think this is an interesting philosophical question. When, a, when is a movement for self-determination real and legitimate enough that some authority should say, yes, you should be allowed to disassociate? It's not I mean, an easy question at all. And usually wars are fought over these things. Right. It's how America got free itself. Well, and <laughs> under, our, under our Constitution, the yeah. only, one of the only legitimate ways that you can, that you can carve up a new state is in, in conflict. So mm. West Virginia exists hmm. because during 
the Civil War when Virginia uh, seceded, there were enough people, this, this is a self-determination case, there were enough people in that part of Virginia that wanted to remain part of the Union, mm. so it was, it was authorized under the Constitution to chop that into a different state and, and keep uh, keep them with us. I think, like to split California, technically, right? They would need to. They would need to like rebel, and then we could then we could carve them into right. three states or something right. like that. I mean, look, I I think that there's a perfectly reasonable pushback that says, and I saw, you know, Elon Musk had tweeted out some maps of the last. I guess, poll that had been done in the region that did show the easternmost regions being heavily, in, you know, in favor, you know, red on the map for, for Russia affiliation. But, you know, there's a perfectly reasonable argument that says, you know, people's opinions change over time. The effect of the Russian invasion might have colored people's opinions. You don't actually know what the outcome of this kind of uh, democratic temperature taking will actually be. And fair enough. But the, the question is, regardless of the outcome, isn't taking a, a test of the temperature like this better than the alternative, which is presuming that you know what people want. Now, I do think the other criticism to your point is, who are we to say that we should put on the table for another country that a significant part of their territory should break off? Fair enough. But after right. we've had all of this media coverage, not only about America's involvement in Ukraine for a long time now, since before the 2014 uh, coup, when we see news stories coming out of the intercept about this long-term CIA's involvement in the region, when we see all of this, uh, you know, we're, we're currently invested to the tune of 80 billion plus dollars right. in the region. And when you do have the reporting that we've covered on this show about the extent to which peace deals have been on the table, that the NATO alliance is basically rejected out of hand at the U.S.'s urging, um, then it starts to become, I think, a more reasonable expectation that we find some other nexus of authority other than the West and NATO. And placing it in the hands of people in the country and in the disputed regions does seem like reasonable. And that the objection is to, to the objection to it is because it is a, a, a peace Mm -hmm. peace-leading intervention as opposed to all the war-leading interventions that, that America seems to have an appetite for. Right. Musk suggested on Twitter that there should be, yeah, let the end the war, no more war, and then a UN-monitored election, uh, and then whatever the will of the people should be the will of the people. Um, that's 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 how countries should form. I mean, you know, in Europe, I mean, for centuries of years, uh, for centuries, uh, the heads of the very, you know, Germany and actually not Germany so until recently, Prussia, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, the Holy Roman Empire and France and England would just, you know, they'd say, okay, we're done fighting for now. You take, you know, this territory, this province is yours now. And it didn't matter what the people thought. It didn't matter if they were more culturally Italian or versus French or something. And like that was, and then there was more wars because those people were unhappy about that. So, like, that's not the right way to form countries, is just for large, powerful yes. governments to say, okay, you people go with them now. Um, but there, there has to be some, we, we want, right, some democratic process, some peaceful process for allowing new nations to form and allowing people to affiliate, because everyone deserves to live, you know, under a regime that, that they find minimally repressive and can tolerate. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The self-determination question, obviously, is one that has caused many, if not most, political conflicts across the globe, yeah. you know, large swaths of the world are reckoning with the borders that have imposed, been imposed right. upon them due to colonialism. Africa, Obviously, right, still dealing with Africa, the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, yeah. over and over and over again, you see that this, this is the problem. So, you know, there is, there is something to the idea, especially from a kind of a conservative libertarian mindset that says, isn't the maximal, maximal peace that we can have and maximal autonomy we have 
shrinking the, yes, you know, that's the whole it. point of uh, federalism and statehood and all yeah. these other kinds of things. And preserve, I mean, the problem with nation building is that there are these powers that we believe a, like a larger entity should have, like having a military, like having certain a certain degree of infrastructure so that we can have economies of scale. And figuring out what that looks like in a world that also allows a sufficient level of self-determination and kind of ethnic determination, the things that are, I think, less artificially controlling territories, it's an ongoing question. It's right. potentially the question of time. And one thing, it seems that most libertarians and, and left-leaning people and also Republic, that everyone can agree on is that government tends to be more, more effective or more, uh, uh, more easier to live on at the more localized it is the more direct input and say and control you have over it is at least an ideal to strive for, then there's, I guess, some impracticalities that may yeah, not. Yeah, that's, that's the ongoing negotiation globally and here on Rising. <laughs> well, that's all for today. We'll be back to get into next week's news uh, next week. That's when we would do next week's news, wouldn't it be? It would be next week. <laughs> that's right. And in the interim, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so that you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm, well, it's been in a week. We'll see you next time. And uh, yeah, check us out on all our new stuff, Roku included. That's exciting. Um, I haven't figured out how to do that yet, but I am going, I keep promising to do it and then report back this weekend. I actually will. <laughs> we'll hold you to it, Robbie. See you later, guys.